Doke. So. Seventh jhana. Which the Buddha didn't call it that, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but it has the appealing name of the realm of nothingness, and the dimension of nothingness. Um, so let's again start by checking out what the Buddha says, which is, okay, he's gone, this monk or whatever has gone through the first six jhanas, and then the thought occurs to him, what if I, with the complete transcending of the sphere, the realm, the base, the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness, recognizing there is nothing, what if I were to enter and remain in the sphere of nothingness? Without jumping at the sphere of nothingness, he enters and remains in the sphere of nothingness. He sticks with that theme, develops it, pursues it, and establishes himself firmly in it. <laughs> Let's just sit quietly for a moment. <laughs> but believe me, it gets worse. <laughs> Trying to put language to these, it gets worse. So, okay. Um, some people, this is, I do, again, I have no idea about statistics, but it's certainly not certainly not uh, unheard of, for a person, even a, a beginner, on their first insight meditation retreat, maybe they just went for some, uh, they heard it was good for stress reduction and relaxation, and somehow, following uh, simple instructions, etc., they're um, sitting there one day in meditation, minding their own business, and a huge, big, black space opens up and they feel like they kind of fall into it, a void or the void. And they might have heard the language of the void and it's got charged uh, or it, it uh, refers to certain, actually refers to different things in different Buddhist traditions over the years and other traditions, the void. Um, so this is, yeah, some, some proportion of people have, have that experience. Something like that happens but usually when that happens, uh, out of the blue, so to speak, like that, and without much preparation, without much orientation, um, uh, there's usually not uh, really a discerning which, if any, if any, of the four arupa jhanas, the four arupa, uh, the immaterial realms, dimensions, uh, one has found oneself encountering. Um, so it, the person will speak, everything disappeared, there was nothing there. But actually I've heard people say that in relation to the first jhana. Just there's something, it becomes very hard. It's so, the, the, it's so, these states, including the first jhana, are so different from people's usual experience, understandably, that one struggles not only to put, put into language and describe to the teacher, if you have an interview or whoever it is, or a friend, what's happened, but also to actually discern what has happened, 
as the Buddha said, what's present now and what is absent? So someone just says, everything disappeared. Well, actually, there's still a lot of stuff. In the first jhana, there's still PT Sukha and all the rest of it. Here, in the realm of nothingness, there's a lot less. But usually, without training, the eyes are not used to the dark, so to speak. So there isn't this discernment, what is still there, what is not. So if you ask such a person who's fallen into, stumbled into encountering um, something like a void, a big black space, ask them, is there a s- was there a sense of space there? They may not have had that much discernment. Was there a sense of space or was there not a sense of space? So usually, w- if someone says, if I say to you, um, imagine nothing, maybe not for you guys at this point, you just say to someone, imagine just nothingness. Probably a person would Im- try and imagine a big black empty space with nothing in it. Probably. But that's not the realm of nothingness. That's probably more akin to the realm of infinite space. At any rate, this, this novice meditator or meditator without any kind of map or orientation or understanding what has just happened, um, this big dark space with nothing in it, without um, much discrimination, because they're not trained and they're not prepared to discriminate the subtleties of differences uh, in all these states. Um, most would, would say, oh, it's, an, it's a nothingness. But actually, because also of the non-discrimination, the, the non-preparation to be able to discriminate and discern, there, there, there won't be the blossoming, there won't be the full blossoming of whatever sort of potential state there is there. It's the discriminating, it's the discerning that allows something to blossom. We're back to this noticing, attuning, amplifying. Amplifying means blossoming. If I don't notice a difference, if I don't attune to it, and if I don't, uh, th- if I don't notice and, and attune to it, then it doesn't get amplified. In other words, it doesn't blossom. So whatever state this is, that oftentimes actually scares the living daylights out of, out of a person, if they're a novice meditator, if such, such a thing happens, it's, it's probably not really any of the formless jhanas. It's a sort of, um, in, in that territory, potentially could be any of them. But because there's not the discrimination, because there isn't the preparation and the skill and the subtlety of and sensitivity of awareness to discriminate, because of all that, it actually doesn't really become any one of them, probably. More, more significantly, um, the person, is this on right? Yeah. The person almost certainly does not understand how that happened at that point. I was just meditating, I was just noticing things, letting go, and then, and then this thing happened almost certainly have no idea uh, how it happened or why it happened. And, and they may or may not get much explanation from uh, books or whoever's teaching the retreat or, or talks or whatever. No understanding how it happened or why it happened. So it just seems a random occurrence. And it might, again, it might be presented as a, a kind of random in- occurrence. What's the important thing? Two things, you'll be okay and it's impermanent. Both of which are true, but there's no real understanding of the why there. And the why has to do with the dependent origination, right? dependent arising, or dependent fading, right? 
Yes? So, it does probably doesn't fully blossom. Probably there's very little or no understanding of uh, how or why that has opened or, or kind of emerged. And, and as I mentioned, there's probably or often would be quite frightening um, such an experience. Uh, one just feels like one's on the edge of an abyss or has fallen into an abyss. Um, there will be fear with such an opening, such a deep uh, bottoming out of experience, such a deep disappearance of the world of, of phenomenal reality, the, 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 the conventional and accustomed world of phenomenal reality. There will be fear, usually, if there aren't a kind of series of stepping stones to such an experience. A series of stepping stones that one has enjoyed and learned to trust and delighted in and has uh, they've become stable bases, stable stepping stones. And what are they? Well, the other six jhanas. So these other six jhanas, up to, up to this seventh jhana, because we learn to really trust them, they're also droppings out. They're also disappearances of, to some degree. They're unfadings, unfabrications, unfabricating to some degree. Do you understand? Um, but we've got used to that. Not only have we got used to it, we've learned that they can become stable and that they're delightful and we trust them. There's nothing to be feared here. Without those stepping stones and, and the training and time that it takes to really establish those stepping stones, then just being presented with this, uh, this edge of an abyss or falling into an abyss is going to be frightening. It's a long way from normal consciousness to such an abyss. It's a much less of a way from the realm of infinite consciousness, the sixth jhana, to the seventh jhana. It's just a step. And so there's much, much, much less likelihood for there to be fear. And then uh, that fear can, you know, cause mayhem in all kinds of ways. So what's going on here? And the Buddha doesn't help that much, does he there? Um, it's not that there, so we were in the infinite consciousness, and it's not then with this next step that it's not that consciousness is not there in the realm of nothingness, but the sense of space has gone. So this is why I say, if, if, if I say to you, can you imagine, can you imagine a big black space with nothing in it? Yeah, most, most would have some sense of that. Okay, but we're saying that's not actually the realm of nothingness. Can you imagine nothingness, not even space? A little trickier, huh? <laughs> okay, so this has really kind of gone beyond our, uh, gone quite beyond our usual sense of things. Space has gone. It's not that consciousness has gone. Uh, consciousness is there, but consciousness is not prominent in the way it was in the sixth jhana, in the realm of infinite consciousness, when the consciousness and the consciousness knowing itself, or even knowing the infinite space, was the primary nimitta. There's still consciousness. There has to be consciousness there in the realm of nothingness, otherwise we wouldn't ha have any sense of anything, any perception of anything, any consciousness of anything. But the consciousness is not prominent. It's rather that the citta, the mind, the heart is struck um, captivated, um, drawn to the sense of nothingness. This sense of nothingness which doesn't even have a, a sense of space with it. Or it might have the last vestiges of space, but as you get deeper into it, even the space kind of 
I don't know what the word is, collapses or s gets sucked into itself like a kind of black hole or something like that. And that nothingness is the primary limiter. That's what the mind is drawn to, captivated by, struck by, entranced by, etc. The consciousness is still there, but it's not, it's not the primary thing. Later on, and I hope we will get to go, go into this or describe it on this retreat, later we, we, ha we have to refine and refocus on the consciousness as one aspect or thread of being able to go even deeper. So at the moment, it just kind of, we f forget about the aspect of consciousness. Later, we have to find it again as just one one thread of a, of, a, of a path that can take us beyond even this nothingness. Experientially, usually such a state, the realm of nothingness, is, is basically pitch black. Um, and uh, as I said, it's, it's, we've gone beyond anything that could be described as space with nothing in it, uh, which would be more akin to the infinite space. Sometimes, sometimes, um, without the sense of space, it can sometimes feel as if it almost has a thick texture to it because the space sort of thins things out and then there's no space. It almost feels thick. But um, I think, and this will get very, very hard language, but uh, that probably passes. And it's not that thickness is, is uh, not that we've then taken a step backwards in terms of refinement. Um, this is definitely a refinement over the last over the last uh, realm of of infinite consciousness there's nothing left as a perception nothing left as a perception but the perception of nothing there's nothing left but nothing <laughs> there's nothing left but nothingness and that's what's that's the one thing that's striking one is something, again, very breathtaking. Um, it may be for some, even someone who's not a, a beginner, like the person we described just on a innocently sitting on an insight meditation retreat, having never heard about any of this stuff. Um, it may still be for some people an acquired taste for some people, but I, I would say at some point, either immediately or gradually or eventually, at some point it will turn and, and one will fall in love with it, fall in love with this mystical nothing this mystical void, this mystical nothingness. So, how, how do we get there? How does it open up? Well, again, w one, one possibility and uh, one, one possibility is just letting the uh, realm of infinite consciousness, letting that mature, just really getting to know that, sit in that, love it, open to it, get to know it inside out, stay in it, stay in it, stay in it, uh, dissolve as much as one can, etc. And naturally, at some point, there will be an evolution and it will sort of take a quantum leap, a quantum jump into a different dimension, th the dimension of nothingness. If, as always, eventually with time and uh, the intention to develop mastery, there's the possibility of... Um, accessing the realm of nothingness w just through a subtle intention through the memory of it and that takes you know a lot of practice as with all the jhanas just getting familiar but but it's it's just as possible but here and i want to dwell on this is where the insight ways of looking as a way in to this realm 
um, are get really interesting and really important, really, really significant. So in this other sutta that we've already mentioned, the Ananja Sapaya Sutta, the way to the imperturbable or the conducive to the imperturbable, sometimes translated. So here is a sutta where um, the bulk of it is the Buddha is talking about insight ways of looking um, to predominantly the formless realms. And there's other stuff in it too. But um, So he's talked about up to the sixth jhana, um, and he gives the name the imperturbable to the fourth, fifth, and sixth jhanas. So just for this sutta, it seems to refer to those fourth, fifth, sixth. And then he says... So he's gone up to that point. And then he says, Then again, the disciple of the noble ones considers this, I, I would say, um, uh, this consider, again, it's not, it's not an, I don't know what a better word in English would be, it's not an intellectual pondering. It's, it's a, one employs a way of looking. And that's a very light, very agile, very subtle, and very potent. A heavy pondering philo philosophically is not going to produce any meditative state and open any doors to other dimensions. Okay, so we don't really have a word in English, but the, the way I would definitely translate is the, the disciple of the, no of the noble ones employs a way of looking which involves a very subtle text that says something like and understands something like all sensuality and all sensual perceptions and all perceptions of forms and all perceptions of the form uh, the, f the form jhanas the rupa jhanas and the realm of space and the the realm of infinite space and the realm of infinite consciousness, all that, all sense perceptions, all form perceptions, all rupa jhana perceptions, all perceptions of infinite space and infinite consciousness, all that, they're all perceptions. They're all just perceptions. Where they cease without remainder, where they end without remainder, where they no longer are, that is peaceful, that is exquisite, i.e., the dimension of nothingness. Practicing and frequently abiding in this way, her mind acquires confidence in that dimension. Um, I'll read the others too, and then we'll come back and, and do them individually. Um, no, let's take them individually, it's better. Um, so, so what's going on here? Basically, One's employing a way of looking. Again, we're talking about some... If you're not used to this idea of ways of looking, we're talking about something very subtle. It's an insight way of looking. It's a certain conception and relationship with, in this case, all those perceptions. So anything that comes up or that might come up, one might be in the fifth jhana or one might be looking at a perception, a material, sensual perception in the world. It might be the third jhana or a perception of a rupa jhana, whatever, all those perceptions and whatever perceptions will come up or have come up, um, they're, they're not peaceful. They're dukkha, basically. So some of you know the first, what I call the first dukkha practice, unsatisfactory. Um, but particularly they're not peaceful. And, and there's, a, there's a sort of confidence there that when they're let go, when these perceptions fade, when they let go, there's a dimension called the dimension of nothingness, which 
which arises when they quieten, which arises when they're absent. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is all a very, very, uh, all that blah, blah, blah I just said is all right there in a way of looking that's just happening again and again and again. Very subtle tincture in, in the way of looking, making the way of looking very subtle, not a whole verbose philosophy. And one's applying it to whatever one is perceiving. Whatever, again and again and again, sustaining over and over and over. And those perceptions fade. And in their absence, the perception of the realm of nothingness opens up. They're not peaceful, but this is peaceful. This is exquisite, the dimension of nothingness. So that's one way the Buddha describes. Um, uh, and so one could say, yeah, they're dukkha, they're unsatisfactory. But particularly with this emphasis on, on their, their, uh, their uh, they're not peaceful. This is peaceful. Second way, second way, second insight way of looking that opens up this realm. Uh, then again, the Buddha says, the disciple of the noble ones, having gone into the wilderness, to the root of a tree, uh, into an empty dwelling, or into a retreat center in rural Devon, um, <laughs> considers this again, consider, same deal. It's with the... Uh, insight way of looking, very subtle, very potent. It's potency, potency uh, proportional to its subtlety in the mind, to its non-verboseness. There may be words there, very subtle, but it's, it's talking about something very agile. Considers this, I really don't like the word, but looks in this way. This is empty of self or of anything pertaining to self. Or you could translate it, this is void of self or of anything belonging to self. Practicing and frequently abiding in this way, his mind acquires confidence in that dimension. And, and the dimension of nothingness opens up. So when we read that originally, you think, oh yeah, that's to do with there being no self, because Buddhists talk about there being no self, right? Um, I think it's actually more to do with what I would call, what I call the phenomenal self. Not the personal self, but the, f the self of phenomena. This is a lamp. This is a piece of paper. This is a glass. Um, this is a hand, etc. So just as we take uh, habitual avidya, habitual delusion takes self to be something real, a real thing, we also do that with anything at all. This is a sound. This is a taste. This is a clock. Do you understand? And to me, what the, what the deep teachings of emptiness are pointed to is not just the emptiness of the personal self, but also the emptiness of the self, selves of phenomena. Everything is empty. All things are empty of being things, of being inherently existing things. So the way of looking, this is empty of self, this is void of self, or of anything pertaining to, to self, or belonging to self. I think it's referring to that, and that if you practice it that way, and the this there is again is anything, anything that's in the attention, anything that one pay, pays attention to, whether it's um, this body or this whatever it is, is empty of self, empty of self, it's empty in itself. That's another way of saying it. it's empty in itself. Um, if one does that again and again and again, we're talking about something very agile. It has to make sense to me what that means. Empty, 
empty. It's empty of self or of um, being something that is a part of, of some larger self, like it's a part of a larger phenomenon, like this spring here is a part of a larger lamp or, or anything like that. Um, that has to make sense. So the insight way of looking uh, has to make sense to me. So w- one, one, you know, I- I- a way of going about is empty of self means it's fabricated in, 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 uh, in the, the way we've been talking about. means this thing does not exist as a thing unless the mind fabricates it as a thing. And if the mind doesn't put in the conditions, clinging and conception and a certain relationship to it, that thing does not get fabricated or constructed as a thing. Does this make sense? Um, so these ways of looking have to make sense, but it would be equivalent, or one way of doing it, or a, short, a, sh- a shorthand way of saying it's fabricated, fabricated. But I have to have the experience of having seen things um, unfabricate through playing with other ways of looking in the past. I have to have enough experience of that, that when I point at something in, with my mind and say fabricated, it's resting on my... Um, on the consolidation of my previous insight, seeing things fade. I know they're fabricated, I know it here in my heart. So I can just say, I can just look at them as fabricated. And in that one word, there's a whole, you could write, uh, you know, a book explaining what that one word means, fabricated. So it has to be there. And that's what I mean, This it's very agile because that one word contains a lot of understanding, but very, very, um, in a very dense way, but very light. So fabricated, maybe um, uh, it's empty in itself or of a phenomenal self, which is more than to say uh, it's not me or not mine, Okay, I would say. So to to really point to this jhana, we need to go beyond the the, the teachings about personal self and not me, not mine, anatta, and actually to the level of the phenomenal self, the emptiness of phenomenal self, which is a deeper level. It could also be, and, and some of you know this, and it's in seeing that freeze. All, all this stuff is in seeing that freeze. Um, but it could also be, say, say, this is empty, empty of self or of anything belonging to a self, void of self or anything void, or, or void of anything belonging to itself. Some of you know, in seeing that freeze, you can find a meditation on holes and parts, and a way of going deep into emptiness or pretty deep into emptiness through a meditation on holes and parts and their relationship and their mutual dependency and mutual emptiness. And so this could be referring to something like that. Whatever this is, it's not a part of something bigger and it's not a whole which has parts. Those whole, those no, the very notions are empty. So there's different ways of doing it. In, I, we don't have time to go into detail. I'm just kind of... Um, pointing at things here, but it's, it's in seeing the freeze in quite a lot of detail. Um, but that might be uh, an option there. Okay, so that's the second one. Third one, then again, the disciple of the Noble Ones considers, all my qualifications about that word considers, uh, the, then again, the disciple of the Noble Ones considers this. I am not anything belonging to anyone anywhere, nor is there anything belonging to me in anyone anywhere. Huh? 
<laughs> I am not anything belonging to anyone anywhere, nor is there anything belonging to me in anyone anywhere. This is a, it should make us scratch our heads. I think, um, I think you have to consider also perhaps the, 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 um, the time of the Buddha and the different religious views that were around and the different meditative practices were around. It's very pro possible. And in fact, in the Buddha's biographical story, there's just this, that, that uh, someone takes, for example, the realm of infinite consciousness as uh, the ultimate reality and everything in the world belongs to that ultimate reality. And not only is it the ultimate reality, but I, in my true essence, and you, in your true essence, are that ultimate reality. Your true essence, yourself, with a capital S, is that infinite cosmic consciousness. And so this strange formula here, um, it, it cuts the possibility of viewing myself or any of the elements of myself in relation to something like the cosmic consciousness. I am not belonging to anyone, that deity, that cosmic consciousness. There's nothing um, in my makeup that belongs to that. Even though I might have been attached to that view and it might have been an extremely helpful, beautiful, liberating, heart-opening view at another level, now I cut it. Remember what we said about provisional truth. I'm going to another level now. Um, I am not anything belonging to anyone, any deity, for instance, anywhere, nor is there anything belonging to me in anyone, anywhere. In a, I also am not taking the seat um, of identification with, for instance, the cosmic consciousness or anything like that, so that all this kind of belongs to me. If you get to this point in practice, Strange as these whole formulas sound and pu puzzling and baffling and sort of arcane, um, it's still worth really, really playing with. Sometimes even when we only half understand something, they have a magical power. Generally, um, that has contradicted what I said earlier. It's like you have to, if you say fabricate or fabricate or empty, it has to really mean something to you. You have to really understand it. And, contradicting myself, there's also the possibility, I have no idea what the hell this means here, but I'm just going to try playing with this, and something happens. So, that's f for later. And then, again, the Buddha says, um, practicing and frequently abiding in this way, his mind acquires confidence in that dimension, such in the realm of, realm of nothingness opens up, <coughs> in that whole m mystical depth of that. Uh, so again, we're talking about insight ways of looking. We're not talking about pondering. We're talking about something that's very light, liquid, agile, um, uh, very, very subtle, um, but has immense power, immense power. And I want to return to those insight ways of looking and, and their relationship with this dimension of nothingness in, in a bit. But just practically speaking, in terms of technique, um, etc. So here we are again. I really want to dissolve in this. I want to dissolve in this nothingness um, as much as I can. There will be, as in all the jhanas, there will be a subtle polarity between subject and object. 
Okay, um, an object here is the nothingness, but there will still be some degree of a subtle polarity, a subtle sense of separation, a subtle duality there. There's still the same thing, still sassy, still sassy. But the A, again, absorption, how much can I dissolve in this? Um, it's, a, it, remember it's, it's an open direction. So it doesn't end. We are, um, <coughs> we're, we're trying to absorb more, we're trying to dissolve more, but we will never totally absorb. Even if you feel like you're totally absorbed in it, it's just that you haven't noticed a subtle remnant of subject-object duality there, of subject-object polarity there. We cannot totally erase or collapse the subject-object duality without much deeper insight ways of looking. Okay, and uh, I know in many circles it's very popular and very quick off the tongue to say uh, no subject-object duality and there was no self and there's no uh, all this. It's very easy to say that, but again, this is why so much emphasis on subtlety, discernment, discrimination, attunement, r really noticing there is still a subtle subject-object duality here. And unless I move the insight to a whole other level, which hopefully we'll talk about in the next couple of days, that is not going to collapse. So usually when people talk about, yeah, there was no self and there's no duality and there's no conception, it's just that they're not paying close enough attention to what's going on. They haven't noticed something. There hasn't been the training in the subtle discerning and discrimination. Um, so when we talk about non-conceptual awareness, when we talk about the total collapse of subject-object duality, we're talking about something extremely rare and extremely strange. Um, and that takes quite a rare and sophisticated and profound and subtle uh, insight to to collapse, to go beyond. Um, but practically speaking, um, well, I want to try keep this A as open-ended. I will never reach the end of A. It's open-ended, the absorption. I just try and dissolve mind and body in this nothingness as m much as one can. And again, it, to this forward-leaning business, again, we can configure it, configure this nothingness upright. So there's less, uh, it's in front of me and I'm kind of falling into it, or the mind is getting sucked into it, or, or trying to probe it uh, in front of me. Or I put it where the body is. There's nothingness where, it's here. It's not just in front of me, it's here too, in, in, in the space of where the body used to be. Um, or I configure it 360 degrees around. All this can help with that sort of uh, strong tendency to lean that, that happens for many people. Okay, depending on how one uh, approached it, so just like the infinite consciousness, a lot of things about working with it depend on which route one has taken into it. If If one's going just from these insight ways of looking, whether one considers this is empty of self, this uh, is empty of anything belonging to a self. The this is really anything at all. It's anything that arises. And it could be the perceptions of normal sensory um, awareness. 
and one starts with that, uh, this, the perception of my body, the perception of this pain, the perception of this PT, whatever, and, and one just keeps, keeps training the insight way of looking on, let's say it starts with a pain, pain in my tummy. And I just keep looking at it with the same insight way of looking. What's going to happen? Probably the pain fades. Probably it goes through a phase where there's PT arising, maybe sukkah. So maybe it goes through some of the jhanas. Quick, so maybe the train doesn't stop there. You're just kind of seeing the station out the window. And it goes, it goes by as it's fading. And then it starts to open up into deeper senses of fading. So the this there from the insight way of looking could be anything. And it might be if one is approaching it that way, through the insight ways of looking, um, or sometimes if one is approaching it other ways, uh, you know, from, let's say, the infinite consciousness. It could be that still other perceptions are arising. Um, and this is quite important because some people say, oh, they're not, they're not gone, they're not, and they get, oh, this is, you know, they need to disappear, and one gets into a bit of a, a tizzy about that, a very subtle tizzy. Um, If that's happening, then what's really, really skillful is to regard them as no things. They are not things. In other words, the same, the same insight way of looking is just trained on them. Now, by that point, it might be that I don't even need the whole, it's empty and blah, blah, blah. it's just, they're no thing. This thing is a no thing. It's a no thing. It's a no thing. Um, or they're fabrications. Again, I need to understand what that means. This sound, I hear that plane or whatever it is, it's, it's fabrication, that sense perception. I need to understand that. Or they're just perceptions, which imply... So that's an interesting one. The, the, the insight way of looking just perception has many alternative subtexts. So it can mean, and I think when some people hear it, or I've taught it in the past, take it to mean, and it's, it's totally valuable for it to mean at one level, what it means is... This is just awareness in substance. Whatever this sound or this pain or this thought is just awareness in substance. So it's taking the insight and the perception from what? From the vastness of awareness and it's applying it as an insight way of looking. And so it's just a perception. It's just awareness in substance. Yeah? But here we need to go beyond that. And if I if I say just a perception, it really means it's fabricated. It's a deeper insight. It's just a perception, meaning it's just something that's fabricated, as all perceptions are. So we might use as a sort of, as our tincture for an insight way of looking, just this very subtle, just a perception, for example, or something like that, whatever the tincture is. But um, it's important to read the small print. It's important to know what, what does it mean, because the small print will determine what happens. If I'm, if I'm viewing it as just a perception, but what I really mean, or what I really understand by that, it's just the same as, it's just the same substance as awareness, it will take me to the vastness of awareness or maybe the infinite consciousness. But if, I, if my just a perception has the small print, just a fabricated perception, just fabricated because all perceptions are fabricated, then it takes me deeper. Make sense? Um, or, again, uh, this is when perceptions are still arising. The, the nothingness is sort of there, but it's sort of uh, stuff at the edges that's, and one feels like oh, it's not completely pure yet. Um, one, again, could regard the, those perceptions as dukkha. D 
dukkha because perceptions are not peaceful, which corresponds to the first of the, th- of the Buddha's three insight ways of looking. They're dukkha, but it has to be that we're not talking about aversion there. If that's dukkha, that's dukkha, and, and it's got irritation in it and aversion, that's not going to take me deeper. It will take me out of the whole depth, right? Because aversion is a fabricator, and we're moving in a direction of less fabrication. You understand? So you have to be careful with these kinds of things and these insight ways of looking that aversion doesn't get woven in subtly. It will, it, w- it has a very strong effect when, when it does that. So you're really um, trying to view with, without aversion, and it's dukkha, it's unsatisfactory. It's dukkha because it's a perception and perceptions are not peaceful, as the Buddha says, but that doesn't mean there's aversion to them. Okay, so it's a real, the, these insight ways of looking are very, very, uh, as I said, subtle, light, agile, liquid, but very finely poised as well. There's something very, again, to the degree of their, the delicacy and the subtlety of the poise is the degree of their power. So actually, what I've just described, this kind of not quite pure parijanic state, it's like in the neighborhood of the nothingness, or the nothingness is there, but the mind hasn't kind of completely entered into it, or it's kind of half in and half out, or, or mostly in and there's a little bit there. This not quite pure, whatever we call it, parijanic state, it may be actually more useful because of the opportunity to practice those ways of looking at objects and at sense perceptions and mental perceptions, right then. Again, we tend to think, oh, it's not going well, or uh, we judge it dependent on how deep the absorption, etc. But the very fact that it's poi- that it's kind of not quite in yet gives us more opportunity to look in a certain way at these perceptions. And that may be uh, more useful than when it's just completely, purely emptied out. Because it's that, it's the ability to look at, it's the ability to sense uh, and to relate to perceptions in, in these ways, with these insight ways of looking, that's what's most liberating. That's what brings the radical change and the radical openings of view. Our ability to be in the world of things, to engage things, knowing they are empty. So this kind of it's not quite settled yet state of uh, w- with regard to the realm of nothingness gives us the opportunity to practice ways of looking right then in this kind of in-between state that one might judge as, I uh, haven't really got it. It gives us the opportunity to practice ways of looking that are, uh, in the end, actually more powerful. Does that make sense? <coughs> so this whole thing this whole realm of nothingness and everything that goes with it is an experience and or an understanding of emptiness at, at a very deep uh, but not yet total or ultimate level. So when we're talking about the dimension of nothingness, we should be, uh, we should be um, understanding emptiness at a very deep level from it, with it, or on our way to it. It's it's wrapped up in in the dimension of nothing. Should be an understanding at a very deep level of emptiness. It's not the final, ultimate, deepest level of emptiness, but it's still really important. 
So again, we can talk about nothingness and no thingness, but they're really just two sides of the same coin. You get, yeah. Um, the advantage, of, I think, of, of working from the insight w ways of looking, as the Buddha described, and as we, we went through very briefly there, and is in yeah, a lot more detail in seeing it freeze, and the advantage of, of working that way um, is because those insights get consolidated more. So, especially number two and three, this is empty of a self or of what belongs to a self. Um, there is, um, what's that phrase again? There is, I am not anything belonging to anyone anywhere, nor is there anything uh, belonging to me in anyone anywhere. These ones uh, are, they're empowering a view of emptiness with regard to phenomena, the phenomena of, of the world, the phenomena of our life. Okay. The first one, perceptions aren't peaceful. Let me go for something without perceptions where there's, where there's more peace. Again, you can hear the danger of dualism there, right? You can hear the danger of a dualistic attachment. Uh, in a way, what I've just said, you know, we could say the samadhi here, in other words, how absorbed am I in this state, is actually less valuable than the insight, you could say. The degree of my um, absorption, etc., into this state may be less valuable than the insight that comes from the state or on my way to it or around it or in the after effects. I would say, I would say that the insight is m actually more important than the degree of samadhi here. Um, so no thing or the emptiness of things. Um, and the understanding of the no-thingness of things, of the absence of inherent existence of things, that really, ultimately, there are no things. The understanding of that while we're perceiving things, this is, uh, as I said, immensely uh, liberating so freeing in its potential. It's a very profound understanding and it has different levels to it, lots, lots of different levels to it, at least the way I would teach it. So understanding, the same understanding of no-thingness at, at deeper and deeper levels. That's the usual way I would teach emptiness is you just kind of go one level, consolidate that, and then to a whole other level of what the same thing means, what it means to say something is empty, what it means to say there are no things. But even at not such a profound level, it can be enormously... Um, liberating, so much potency of, of uh, potential freedom there. When there's no thing, when, the, when we begin to se sense that or be able to see, there's no thing here, really, um, then there's the, the possibility that uh, we can be with something with either no or much less sense of imprisonment in, with regard to that thing much less sense or no sense of imprisonment in, with, or by any form. Whether that form is a relationship, one feels, uh, you know, claustrophobic in, 
whether it's a work situation that one feels hampered by, stuck in, constricted by, whether it's a, uh, any kind of situation or a social situation or social, an ongoing social kind of uh, construction that one finds oneself in, whether it's an illness, whether it's a retreat, and uh, the uh, bonds of, of finitude. Where there's, where there's finitude, we can feel imprisoned by those edges. In all kinds of ways. You just have to ponder this and actually see. Where there's a thing, there's the possibility of imprisonment in relation to, with, by, in that thing. So understanding this no-thingness, being able to relate to a thing, see a thing, be in a thing. I'm using thing obviously in a very broad sense now. Uh, to be able to see that way and know its nothingness can open up tremendous freedom, the end of a sense of imprisonment. One is free. The, the bars are still there, and one is free. So someone used to say to people years ago, you know, sometimes it's really good, like for example in walking meditation. I said, well, can't I just go for a walk? Same thing, I'll, walk, I'll do it mindfully. And I used to say, no, walk up and down and up and down and up and down. You have a beginning and you have an end closed form and then sometimes I would say to people and and do a walking meditation period for six hours or more six seven eight hours walk 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 until you see the illusion of the closeness of that form of course I have to incline my mind to that insight here I'm imprisoned I can't be f I'm not free to go anywhere. I'm just walking up and down in this body until one sees through, sees through the form, sees through any sense of imprisonment in that form. Sees the emptiness of walking. So this applies to, what we're talking about here applies to so many other things, so many forms, so many structures, so many imprisonments. It's an emptiness insight and it's related to this no thing, no thingness business of the seventh jhana. And as I said, there's many different levels of this. But even at a kind of more conventional level, we can, as I said, just, I don't know what all this means, just walk, just for example, do your walking meditation, hours and hours and hours until you see through the what looks like a restricted form, and you're free. So, the samadhi, as I said, may be, may be less valuable than the insight here. And there's a way, as we've been talking about, the jhana should bring certain insights, it will bring certain insights. When one goes into this level, uh, dimension of nothingness, it, it should bring certain insights. But certainly the insight ways of looking will deliver the jhana. So the causality, again, works both ways. But if I go, if I enter this jhana and this dimension of nothingness, if I go via the insight ways of looking, um, it will tend to reinforce those insights more. I will learn those insights more because they've been part of how I've got there as well. So in the jhana, as I said, you can have a sense of nothingness um, and a sense of no-thingness. And it can be slightly different. I mean, the actual jhana is really a sense of nothingness. The insight is of no-thingness. It's the, the latter, the, the sense of no-thingness, the recognition of no-thingness that's most important for insight. Even if I, this is an interesting one, if I just have an experience of nothingness, deep nothingness, to me it should lead to the insights that the Buddha is talking about, 
emptiness of phenomenal self, etc. It should lead to the insight that there are no things really. Um, but again, the power of conceptual framework, because I've heard and read people talk about this, and they don't this state, and they seem to have very good absorption into it, but they don't seem to have kind of uh, sucked the juice from it in terms of the, the most uh, relevant and the deepest insight from it. So all very well, the absorption is good and fantastic and you can hold your mind there, but where is the liberating insight from it? So it could be, again, that because of a conceptual framework which isn't relating these things to emptiness, there is actually a stranglehold on the uh, growth of insight. But it may be that the force of the jhanic experience anyway opens that. But I, I do know cases where that's not the case. And it, to me it points again to the, the uh, hidden power of conceptual frameworks and how, again, how important it is to pay attention to conceptual frameworks and just see, are, they, are we adopting and using and relying on the, the, mo the most powerful conceptual frameworks, the ones that make the most sense, the ones that point in the right direction? Are we, are we picking the right thing from the fruit tree? Or are we walking away with something else, like a, a twig or something, and not an apple? And then, so the view then that comes, that becomes available, and the understanding, and also the after-effect on perception here, um, is one moves in the world afterwards, and one's clearly moving in a world of things but they're at the same time felt and seen to be in some very mysterious way not things. It's a thing and it's not a thing. And it's hard to put that into language. And, but one way of saying that is, is these understandings and these perception attainments, they don't make us dysfunctional in the world. Like I'm now unable to drink water because I can't sense a thing there. Of course I can sense a thing, but I can also sense it as not a thing. No thing, it's, as I said, related to emptiness, it does not mean impermanence. Okay. Emptiness is way beyond impermanence. And when we talk about the no-thingness of things, we're not saying there's not really a glass of water here, there's not really a glass here, there's not really water here. What there are is the really, really rapid arising and passing of uh, either perceptions or atoms or, or whatever it is. That's impermanence. It might be super fast impermanence. That's not emptiness. So that would be an example. If I took the insight of rapid impermanence from all this business of no thingness and this jhana, I would be taking, I don't know, a twig from the apple tree and not the apple. No thing, emptiness. This is much, much deeper, much more uh, powerfully liberating than, uh, than impermanence. So, again, there's certain recurrent thre themes through all this, and, and uh, still with this, with this level of opening and this um, m mystical um, kind of revelation, really, um, it still brings uh, metta. Metta comes from it, okay, just like all the other jhanas. The metta here, you know, luscious, profound, 
um, flavoured with the depth of mystery and, and flavoured with the depth of the mystery of no-thingness, of thingness and no-thingness at the same time, of emptiness. Meta at a whole other level. And again, we can ask, why meta? Why meta? Everything's disappearing. There's no thing. But there's also then no di- less emphasis on the differences. There's um, certainly less emphasis on this self and the, and the interests of the self and the selfish interests of this self over and above others. But even more, there's a kind of, again, there's oneness. Just like, just like these, the other Arupa jhanas that we've talked about. Oneness, um, a, another whole level of oneness, another whole level of, of mystical oneness opens up with these perceptions. So we had the oneness of materiality, this sort of uh, woven togetherness of our bodies, of our matter, of all matter, with all matter in the universe. We had the oneness of awareness from the infinite consciousness, the one, the mysterious oneness of our consciousnesses. And here we have a kind of oneness um, of essence or substance, but that essence is a kind of essence of emptiness. I use essence almost in inverted commas. The substance of all beings and all things, the substance of all phenomena, the essence of all beings and all phenomena is recognized, is felt to be emptiness. But we have to use that word essence a little carefully. And that's a whole other level of uh, mystical oneness that that, 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 that the heart opens to. So it's emptiness understood at a certain level there, or a certain bandwidth of levels pertaining to the seventh jhana. So metta comes, as we would expect by now, and one a, a, a further opening of oneness. So just to linger on the metta piece, later, um, after you've developed this for a while, and, and also with the development of other emptiness practices, um, again, we can make cocktails. So we can mix perhaps certain Brahma-Vihara practices, maybe metta or karuna, compassion practice, um, with, uh, for instance, this sense of no-thingness or emptiness. Um, There is, as we talked about, the spectrum of fading, spectrum of unfabricating, and it's possible, with practice, it's possible to play with, with perception, which is, again, one way of construing everything that we're doing, one way of construing what the whole Dharma is, we're playing with perception and play along that spectrum of fading so that self and other fade to a great degree and phenomena as well. There's a partial fading of this being or that being who, who one is then directing meta towards. They become extremely insubstantial, barely there because they're faded. They're just on, on the sort of cusp of completely, completely fading out and diaphanous there, they're on the verge of fading. But still they're there as an object, as a person. N- knowing that they're empty, so there's a knowing that, they're em- that, they're, that they are empty, they're empty of inherent existence. There's an experientially, uh, that, that knowing of their emptiness is empowering an insight way of looking which is empowering the fading down to a point where they're just, they're just kind of appearing, teetering on the edge. Um, and then the love, the m- and then practicing the metta or the karuna towards this empty person 
balance somewhere on on a cusp of of fading and appearance. So uh, they're barely there. They're appearing, but they're barely there. They're barely formed. Um, They're half faded, yet they're distinct. They're just about distinct as this person or that person, etc. And doing that, and then and then adding adding into this alchemical mix, adding your metta towards this person or your karuna towards this person, um, t- empowers the metta or the karuna to a whole other level. And some people think, well, if someone's empty, surely I'm not going to have metta because they're empty, right? But no, if you actually practice it, it takes the the love and the compassion to a whole other level, a whole other empowerment. And actually this kind of thing, playing with the spectrum of fading, through an insight way of looking, making cocktails, etc., there's all kinds of options that start opening up, all kinds of games we can play and be very creative here, all kinds of of beauty and, and wonder that can open up in this territory. In a way, one could say this is the territory now of tantric practice, of Vajrayana, ideally, I would say. It comes from this knowing of emptiness, this understanding of emptiness, and this ability to actually uh, control, if you like, or play with perception to a certain degree, so that things don't just completely fade, and then I can't do anything, there's nothing, because everything's completely gone. But nor nor are things or beings reified and solid. They're in this diaphanous, divine, empty, yet appearing on the cusp of fading, yet appearing. They're in that place, and it's a magical place, and it's a place of potent magic. In, in the Mahayana teachings, it's said that only a Buddha, not an Arahant, not a, not a fully enlightened person in the Theravada teachings, only a Buddha, a complete Buddha, can both fully uh, view something or someone as empty at the same time that they still perceive that thing or that that someone as empty uh, 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 still perceive them as 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 someone or something for e- all the rest of us when i view x or y or this person or that person or this phenomenon or that phenomenon as empty if i if if again that that makes sense to me what it means and i'm applying it in this agile subtle way and viewing this as empty, that thing will disappear, it will fade. Only a Buddha can fully view something as empty and still perceive it. That's a, that's a, a core but, and fundamental but not very well-known Mahayana teaching, and it has enormous implications. So that what we're what one, one way of construing what one's doing when you're practicing Vajrayana visualization practices and seeing appearances d- as divine, and some of you will never have heard of this, some of you will have, is you're mimicking, you're deliberately mimicking the mind of a Buddha and that capacity of a Buddha to do just that, to, to understand and view something as empty at the same time you're actually perceiving it without it completely fading. So that Vajrayana, that kind of practice, is, is just this uh, pretend mimicking of being a Buddha. And if you do that enough, that's one way to become a Buddha, is you just imitate a Buddha, and then you become a Buddha. That's all Mahayana and Vajrayana teaching, I'm just mentioning it. But a couple of things from that, um, and they're significant 
well, that I think that's very significant uh, in all kinds of ways, and certainly as practice options, um, hugely significant, um, and and you know Im- immensely beautiful playgrounds open up, immensely beautiful realms and possibilities open up there. Um, but there's a couple of points I want to draw out from what I've just been talking about. So one is about um, about this malleability of perception and with with the emptiness and, and the fading. I come back to that. The other, again, is revisiting our theme of desire. And we said there's this four itipada that the Buddha talked about, and desire is one of them. And we keep touching on it in this retreat. And one of the things I said, and I've said it now, I've pulled it out as something to talk about twice, and third time now at least, I think, is, again, um, what is it exactly I'm desiring from practice? And that, what exactly is the mix of desires, the precise mix of my desires that brings me to practice, that keeps me practicing, that takes me to retreats or whatever it is, What's in there, what those desires are, has a tremendous influence on them what unfolds, let's say, on a retreat or in your practice or in your life. So that if, if, um, if one of those desires, or even the main desire for practice, is um, uh, to be, to open my heart, and for the heart to be touched. And that's really what takes me to practice. And that's maybe what brings me on a, on a jhana retreat somehow. Um, that may seem a bit of a strange choice of retreat. You know, why would you go on, a, if you want that, why would you choose a jhana retreat necessarily? And again, talking about this, the, the, the influence of, of exactly what, what it is that I desire, the influence of that on what unfolds and what becomes possible. Because if that's my primary intention, maybe conscious, it may be semi-conscious, then I pr- it's probably not enough to sustain the intention for jhanas and for jhana practice. That's probably not, I mean, it's a wonderful intention, but it's probably not enough to actually show up hour after hour on a retreat like this or, 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 some, or a longer jhana retreat um, to actually sustain, this is what I'm doing, and I'm not getting distracted, this is, w- this is the primary thing I'm doing, I'm occasionally doing something else, but this is what I'm doing. We've talked over and over about just how um, hard that is to sustain that intention, and also just how important it is to sustain that intention, because without it sustaining, things won't open up. They just, they'll open up in a very limited way, but they won't unfold to these kinds of depths, or, or any, any real jhanic depths. Hard to sustain that, difficult to sustain that intention, a, a single intention like that. But if, if my kind of primary thing that I'm looking for or wanting from practice is the heart to be touched or open, then, um, as I said, it's probably not enough to sustain that intention. It's probably not enough to keep working and playing, for instance, in the ways that we're, we've been taught. Because I'm actually interested in, in something else, and it's hard to see the connection, and I'll be drawn to other things because they're, they're more in line, or they're more obviously in line with my desire. So this might seem a strange thing to say at this point of the tree, um, but again, partly I'm talking to the recordings uh, when I talk, but, um, but there's a more general principle which applies 
anyway, and I want to really reinforce that general principle. So if I'm interested in any deep practice, developing any deep practice, jhanas, emptiness, whatever it is, then I really have to understand, I'm saying it again, I really have to understand desire. And I have to understand my relationship with desire, and that has to be authentic. And I have to understand what I tend to do or not do with desire. And I have to understand what the influences are of different desires. And, and all of that, which I'm just repeating what I've said before. So it's this general principle that is really important. If there was someone listening to the recordings uh, who starts listening, let's say, to the recordings from this retreat, um, but really what they're mostly wanting is open-heartedness and uh, for their heart to be touched or something, um, which may not even be something they've articulated consciously to themselves. It's probably the case that they will have given up listening to the recordings by now. Um, but the general principle is really important about what we're talking about, about desire and really being clear about what the desires are. So that's one thing. But the second thing I think also again is really important um, because it is true, and I, it, you, most of you will have got this sense, it is true that the jhanas open the heart. Can I say that now and you feel that that's a, yeah, it should be. You should have a real sense of like, wow, these, this really has an impact on the heart. The, the capacity of the heart to be touched, the capacity of the heart to hold um, ranges of, and depths and beauties of emotion uh, and, and also difficult emotion and all that. Jhanas do open the heart enormously in ways and un, uh, at levels that perhaps before really engaging in such practices and staying with them and pursuing and, and, and kind of, okay, staying with the intention and working in these ways would have been undreamed of the way the heart opened. It wouldn't it never have occurred to us that the heart could open in such ways or at such levels. Again though, again, if consciously or semi-consciously I have a conception or a conceptual framework or an idea or uh, an image of what heart-opening love or even sensitivity is one word that we've been using. If I have um, an idea, an image, a notion, a conception of what those things mean, heart-opening love, sensitivity, for example, uh, what they mean, what they look like, what they involve, what they need, if my idea is limited, then it might be that there is a limited uh, range and possibility and depth of heart opening. Because my very conception, even if it's, an, if it's semi-conscious, is limiting what's possible for the heart. It's limiting the heart opening that's possible. One remains confined in um, the presupposed limits. Again, not even, they weren't even conscious, perhaps. In fact, the danger is e- even more, and especially so when we think, but I, I just want my heart to open. I don't, I'm not really into conceptual frameworks. I don't, I'm not really a conceptual person. I'm just kind of open because I want my heart to be open, so I keep my mind open. But actually, it's not. There's, a, there's an idea there, there's a limit, there's, there's an idea, an image, a notion of what heart opening or being touched or whatever means, involves, needs, looks like. And 
that limited idea is limiting what's actually possible. So heart opening is endless, I would say. It's endless. There's no end to heart opening. There's no end. It's endless in terms of what it is and also what it includes and what it involves. It's endless if we let it be endless. Meaning if we let the heart open, but also if we let the mind be not limited in terms of what it means. Again, the power of conception, the power of conceptual frameworks, the power of notions and ideas, conscious or unconscious, is enormous, really, really enormous. This is something to really explore. Um, again, we can talk about jhanas and da da da, but there's other other issues like desire and desire and idea or conception that have have power and and uh, have determinative power over. Um, much, much more than we recognize. And, uh, and they have determined power over what will open for us as human beings or what remains closed. And we don't even understand why is it remaining closed. Or we don't even recognize it remains closed until we hear other people talking about things. Oh, why, why haven't I had that experience? Okay, last thing relating back to the emptiness. We talk, talked about the metta and the love and the desire and... Uh, Again, coming back to our theme of malleability of perception. Um, so it, it should be, I would say, that, um, let's say, to the degree that one has realized the emptiness of things. And, and remember, that's a spectrum. It's really a spectrum. So we're talking about emptiness of things can be realized at a very everyday, not big deal level. And it's still really, really important. And it can be you know, realized at, at all the way down incredibly deep, everything in between. But that realization of the, of the emptiness of things, it, um, or the no-thingness of things, um, for many people it legitimizes and opens up the possibilities for uh, playing with perception even more, for the malleability of perception. So <coughs> on the opening talk, in the opening talk, <coughs> I think it was the opening talk. I um, well, very near the beginning of the retreat. Anyway, I I uh, said something of just recognizing and wanting wanting to sort of acknowledge together and out loud the fact that I I knew that many of you uh, would have um, have been, for instance, uh, very active working in activism of different sorts recently, and particularly with. Um, activism around climate change and species loss and the environment and, and this kind of thing. And arrived at the retreat uh, kind of very tired from all that and the craziness of, if you were in XR, rebellions and things. Um, tired, wired and grieving. Um, so that was a possibility. And someone who indeed, indeed did um, arrive at the retreat um, after lots of dedicated activism wired, tired, and grieving. Um, left a beautiful note the other day, so I, I'm going to read it to you and then say, say a few things about it. Um, she says, this morning, <coughs> so this is on, the, you know, wired, tired, and grieving from, from all that activism, and then, and then on this retreat. And then this morning, I decided to walk in, walk in sukkah. Okay, so walk with the primary nimitta of the second jhana. jhana. 
being being surrounded and welcomed by it rather than walking in a sukha bubble of my energy body. So the usual instruction has been to keep the sukha, if we're doing sukha, if you're going for a walk, keep it in the energy body bubble space, right? So I tried something different. I want to walk surrounded by it um, rather than just in the energy bubble. And it says, excuse me, um, for many months I found it nearly impossible to enjoy being in nature, although I was in amazing places in the natural world. I mainly perceived perceived it, perceived nature as wounded, deeply ailing, dying, etc. A perception that is not only very painful, but also, as I was very aware of, not always helpful or sustainable for the being. This morning, all was radiating or being an expression or manifestation of happiness. The very fabric of the cosmos was sukkha. This was very beautiful and healing. Yet what was even more profound and made me cry was that not only was all an expression of sukkha, but that the cosmos or all or it, question mark, was delighted and happy at my activism. No matter how flawed, mad, confused it may be, the activism, at times, it, the cosmos, the world, the nature, rejoiced in it, no matter what the outcome. So, just want to analyze this a little bit. So, beautiful experience, very healing. There's the jhanic familiarity, in this case with the second jhana, and there's at least some degree of mastery, maybe complete or some degree, because uh, we said the walking, walking with the sukkha is part of the elements of mastery. It's jhanic familiarity, some degree of mastery, and then the choice, deliberately not to contain it to the energy body, as would be relevant to the second jhana, but to allow it to become huge and cosmic, if you like. Um, so in soul-making dharma, the distinction I want to make here is, is one that pertains to, for, uh, to soul-making dharma, etc. In soul-making dharma, we have this word cosmopoesis, which really pertains, which really means cosmo, cosmos, and poesis, a, a making or creating or an art uh, 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 of perceiving the cosmos a certain way, of sensing the cosmos a certain way. So they went. They came here a, a cosmopoesis at first, but that cosmopoesis wasn't fully imaginal, or it could be that there's a cosmos. Let's say I'm not sure how quite what the order or the pacing of how things unfolded here. It doesn't matter. The point I want to make is, we can have a cosmopoesis, and as uh, um, someone shared in a note the other day, the fabric of the universe being joy. So here's the fabric of the universe being sukkha. Same. There's a cosmopoesis. But we can have a cosmopoesis that's not fully imaginal. Okay, it's just a cosmopoesis. It's an after-effect of perception. It's a malleability of perception. What the sense of the cosmos is. Then, in in this report, that cosmopoesis becomes more imaginal. Why? What's the difference? One of the differences is the self gets drawn into the soul-making dynamic. It's not just the universe is has its fabric uh, of joy delightful as that is incredibly beautiful mystical uh, lovely experience that is when it gets to being imaginal when we get into soul making territory something else starts to happen and the self 
gets drawn into the soul making down itself becomes image to some extent. So, yeah. um, and then from that, other elements of, as you, we talk about the lattice, um, what are we talking, what's it called? The, the, the lattice of the imaginal, the nodes, the different elements of the imaginal will start to get drawn in because the self has become imaginal. And that's very different from an experience where there's joy, the, the cosmos is joy, its essence, its substance is joy, but the self is not really drawn into the experience. It's prominent, it's enjoying it, it's touched by it, but it hasn't become uh, personal in that way. Does that make sense? Um, so one, one of the moves, one of the occurrences that sends it then into imaginal territory, and it's not really a black and white division like all these things, even with jhanas, is the, is the, the becoming imaginal of the self, of the self sense, not just the objects, not just the world, but the self as well. Um, and back to fantasies of the path, what supports our desire, what supports our intention, etc. Here then is the possibility, an image opened up, but involved the image of the self and of nature and of the cosmos, both self, other, world, became imaginal, but in a way, the potential here for that very image and the, the uh, what were the words, the delight and the happiness and the rejoicing in her activism, in the narrative of the self, in the dedication and, and even the willingness of the self to do this work, mad as it seemed, ineffectual as it seemed, um, difficult as it seemed, painful as it seemed, the narrative and the dukkha of the self become image. They get drawn into the image, different than just a cosmopoesis, uh, uh, the, the fabric of the cosmos becoming joy or whatever, and the self remains very quiet, very much in the background. It's a different level, but that possibility then can become uh, you know, immensely helpful in the long term, for instance, as a fantasy, as an image that um, really ramps up the support long term for uh, working at difficult things, working through difficult times, whatever it is. If you're on a retreat and it's difficult, what's the fantasy of the path we've talked about? What's the view? In this case, it's activism. No matter what the outcome, the blessings of when things get imaginal that way is they get liberated because of the eternality of I I the imaginal territory. They get liberated from, the, from a dependency on the outcome. So one's free uh, to work, free to be with the pain, that's supported by the beauty and the soulfulness and the depth of the fantasy that touches the self, and not so um, <sighs> hampered by and, and worried by and limited by what the outcome might be. And yet one's still working full out for it, but supported by this whole other dimension of being, the imaginal sense. And then this support in the long term to be able to sustain one's, one's soul desires, one's deep desires through the difficult, through the long term, without the heart having to close, without the heart having to close to grief, to pain, to possible failure, and the threat of possible failure. So it's not a soul-making retreat, but I wanted to say this because, again, desire... 
an understanding desire, an understanding that has a lot to do with um, being able to open up to what we want to open up to, being able to do what we set out to do and sustain that. And there's also this connection with the malleability of perception, which starts to, we've talked about it from the beginning of this retreat, in this realm of no-thingness, and we talk about the emptiness of things, the, as I said, the legitimacy and the possibility of the malleability of perception just open up even more, goes to a whole other level. So relevant in a few ways. Okay, let's, let's have some quiet time together. everybody. Um, time for tea. Enjoy. Is there anything else? No? Okay. <clears throat>